Now, people of God, let us open our Bibles again to Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter. Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter, as we continue to work our way through this wonderful Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to the end of the chapter. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thy children offer our thanks and praise for the Word of God, the inerrant Word, thy Word is truth. And in a day in particular in which truth is denied, it is denied even as a possibility, we know with certainty that this is the Word of God. We believe it with all of our hearts. We submit to it. We ask that we will grow thereby. That where there is sin within our hearts, the Word and the hand of the Holy Spirit would remove it and forgive and pardon. That we would hear the pardoning voice of Jesus Christ every time we turn to the sacred Scriptures. And Heavenly Father, as we, thy people, grow under this word in our pilgrimage always under the Bible until we reach heaven. We pray that those who may be in our midst today who are lost and who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ will be drawn out of darkness into light, and that this would be the day in which a number of people, even now, would be regenerated by the Spirit of God and converted to Jesus Christ. May we never have a service of worship in which the people of God do not grow. May we never have a service of worship in which there is not someone converted, or at least that the seed is planted that will be watered and that thou wilt give the increase. We humbly ask that now our attention would be given to the word of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and these things we pray in his name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, beginning with verse 31. This is the Word of God. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought him to him, a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Aphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, I wonder if you sense with me the power of these short healing narratives that we find in the Gospels. 
Have you thought about the fact that when you hear them, you are hearing historical narratives told by men who once themselves were alienated from God, but who have now been reconciled through Jesus Christ? These men walked with Jesus, or knew men who did, saw these miracles, and are letting you in on the secret of their new life, the person who transformed them. Hearing or reading a narrative such as this one is perhaps the nearest that you can come to the reconciling power that streamed from the life of Christ, as near as you can come, that is, until you, in your own soul, experience the reconciling power of Christ. In this passage, we have a second healing in Gentile territory. It was in the area around Decapolis, an area of 10 Greco-Roman cities that were thriving centers of trade. And there was a bustling area that served as a Roman security ring around Palestine and a protection from Jewish nationalism. And though I've not seen it myself, I've seen fascinating photographs of Gerasa, one of these 10 cities, modern Jerash, including the circular colonnade forum in a city with three theaters, the largest of which sat 4,000 people, which I understand has been restored. Jesus is sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and rarely visited the area of Decapolis, this primarily Gentile area. But here he is in Gentile territory, in the providence of God. And this is the same region in which Jesus cast out legion in chapter 5 of Mark's gospel. And so it is no surprise to read that a crowd brought to Jesus, and this is the first thing we see, a man needing a cure. A man needing a cure. He was a deaf mute. In verse 32, we read, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He was deaf, mute, probably meaning that his speech was unintelligible. And the word for mute or dumb is a rare word. In the New Testament, it is found only here, this particular word. It is found, however, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the passage that was read this morning by Pastor MacDonald from Isaiah 35. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. And since it is a rare word, and given the connection of themes, then who can doubt that Mark actually has in mind this passage from Isaiah 35.6? This is loaded with significance because the rabbis, in the day in which the Lord Jesus ministered, believed that it would be fulfilled. That passage would be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, and certainly they were right about that. This poor man probably has no idea why the crowd is rushing him along. Perhaps he had seen the miracles of Jesus himself. Perhaps they're pointing to Jesus and saying to him, we're taking you to him. He can't hear, but he understands. Or perhaps the crowd just sweeps him along and they bring him to Jesus and he's, he's in turmoil inside, not knowing what is going to happen. And we don't know why the crowd brings him. Does the crowd bring him because they care about him? 
Or does the crowd bring him because they want to see Jesus perform a miracle? We simply do not know. But there is a man here who needs a cure. He cannot hear and he cannot speak properly. And then, secondly, we see an unusual cure. Notice in verse 33 how we read, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. Now, let's dwell on that for a moment. Jesus took the man aside. He would be personal with the man, and he would not be ostentatious in his approach. And I think the personal interest that the Lord Jesus shows to this man and shows to all the people with whom he ministered and to whom he ministered in Mark's gospel and in all of the gospels, this personal interest is of immense importance to us. I've come to understand the importance of this attitude of heart more and more as I grow older as a pastor. Christian thinking is concerned with and motivated by the incarnation of our Lord. We take in the world that is before us with the basic fact always in our minds that God himself came down into this world, the incarnate Lord, and God cared for his people and therefore came into this world to redeem and to save. He entered into this world to save his people, and therefore, by implication, this means that we, his people, also care about others. This is increasingly important in a world in which so much is impersonal, in a world in which we're servants of technology, in which we are subservient to cars and computers and endless meetings and activities, and we're drugged by meaningless activity, And often people don't know how to think, and they don't know how to dream or meditate or appreciate nature or art or to understand the foundations of living or the foundations of liberty. So much is cold. So much is impersonal. And today people are lonely even in the crowds. They isolate themselves with phones and technology and with AI on the rise. This will grow worse for those who allow it. People almost never think of God, certainly unbelievers, never think of God, never think of the supernatural. Our value is viewed in terms of whether we can be used, whether we can be used as voters or purchase something advertised or become cogs in a machine. We are valued because of our potential to further a cause or because of our function. We can hardly appreciate what it means anymore to be human. Many do not acknowledge that God made man male and female, and some love suppressing that very obvious truth. And people are now things and bundles of emotion with no standard upon which to base their living. And we have chosen mediocrity as our approach to life rather than that which ennobles the soul. As a pastor, I've come to be extraordinarily concerned over the years as I've watched the tendencies in the church. I'm very concerned about any evangelism and church life that sees people as commodities. What could be more contrary to the reason that God became incarnate than to view people as simple commodities? The scriptures teach that people, human beings, are created in the image of God. And Christ came to redeem us and to restore the image that was lost in the fall. 
the church should participate in nothing that dehumanizes people. Surely, since God came into the world, if there is anywhere that people should be expected to be treated with dignity and respect and like people rather than commodities, it is in the church of Jesus Christ. So Jesus cares about this man, takes him away from the crowd, looks him in the eye, and he speaks to him. The man couldn't hear a word spoken. He couldn't ask questions. He couldn't say, who are you? He couldn't say, what are you about to do to me? He couldn't say, why has the crowd brought me here? Perhaps he was very frightened. He could not hear. He could not speak. And so Jesus communicates with the man through sign language. He could not hear, but in verses 33 and 34, we read what Jesus did. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Now talk with Mary Nyman sometime. She is an expert at sign language. And I've often thought how gratifying it must be to be able to interpret a sermon for someone who cannot hear or to carry on a conversation and speak truth to someone who needs it, who needs consolation, who needs to understand the gospel, who needs the Bible, who needs a friend. How gratifying it must be to be able to communicate with sign language, which is a great gift indeed. Well, that's essentially what Jesus is doing here. Jesus thrusts his fingers into the man's ears. And by that sign, he is saying, I will, up, I will unstop your ears. You're going to hear from these very ears. And then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Now, I assume that means that Jesus did this. And then he touched the man's tongue. And by doing that, he is saying to him, I am the one who will enable you to speak again and to speak clearly. And then he looked up to heaven. Why? Because he is saying to the man, what is about to happen to you is not magic. It is the gift of God. It is a miracle that is sent from God, this healing you owe to God. And it is communicating by a kind of sign language, only Jesus did not simply communicate what he was thinking of doing but he actually healed the man. And he said to him, Ephatha, open up. Literally, open completely. Be opened. And the term is used in the Greek Testament, bound, probably indicating that there is demonic activity to be overcome. He is under the bondage of Satan. C.E.B. Cranfield said that the idea of being opened, I think he's right about this, the idea of being opened is not of a particular part of the person being opened, but of the whole person being opened and released. One whom Satan had kept shut up and bound is being released. And that has not changed. Do you know that you are bound? That we can see in this a kind of picture of who we are outside of Jesus Christ. And our minds are bound, and our wills are bound, and our emotions are bound, and our persons are bound under sin and under the, the disillusionment of this world and under the power of Satan. 
and you need to be freed. And there is only one who can do this, and that is the one who can say, Ephatha, be opened. The one who only can show the sign of the kingdom. So immediately the man could hear, and the man could speak. In verse 35, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. His hearing was restored. His tongue was untied. The authorized, the King James Version translates it, the string of his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak without any trouble, the text tells us. His tongue was released. Literally the bond, that word in Greek of his tongue, was loosed and he spoke correctly. When Jesus performs the sign, it shows that the kingdom of God has arrived in his person and work. Now there's something else about this cure. Not only was it an unusual cure, but thirdly, it was a costly cure. A costly cure. In verse 34, we read, And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. Now, don't pass by remarks like that when you read them in the Bible, as if it's incidental. It's not incidental. Peter must have told Mark, remember that Mark's gospel almost certainly is a recording of Peter's preaching. Peter must have told Mark that Jesus sighed, or you could translate it, he groaned. It is an interesting detail that is recorded here in God's Word, and it should raise the question, why? Why did Jesus look up to heaven and sigh? Why did he groan? Now remember, Paul uses this term to indicate in Romans 8.22 how nature groans for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or how uh, believers, when they are faced with eternal matters, sometimes groan within their hearts. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verses 2 and 4, where he's speaking of eternity, uh, Paul says, for in this tent we groan, longing to be put, to put on our heavenly dwelling. And again in verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. So the Apostle Paul uses that term. We will see this expression, sighing or groaning, in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel. We saw it when we have looked from time to time at John chapter 11, when Jesus sighed at the grave of Lazarus. For what do you sigh as a Christian? Do you sigh because of indwelling sin and you long to be freed from it? Do you sigh because your body is racked with pain, because of the effects of the fall? Do you sigh because you love someone whose heart is not changed and you cannot change that heart? And you sigh before the Lord, asking, Lord, will you please save that loved one? Will you please save that person for whom I'm praying? There can be all sorts of reasons in a fallen world that joyful Christians also simultaneously sigh and groan within. Well, Jesus, God incarnate, the sinless, impeccable Son of God, looks toward heaven and he sighs. Why? Mark is very sparse in in speaking to us of Jesus' emotion. Why does he record it? Why did Jesus sigh? 
Jesus is God become man. He entered into this fallen, sin-cursed world with all of the horrible effects of the fall. And this is the sigh of God in the flesh as he beholds the effects of the fall in this sinful world and in the life of this needy man. And probably we should think of the man's disablement as the result of demonic activity and the strong emotion that is expressed as Jesus wages war against the evil one. And as I was reading this passage and thinking about this sigh of the Lord Jesus in this passage, I remembered the words of Shelley, ocean of time whose waters of deep woe are brackish with the salt of human tears. So Jesus has entered into this veil of Bacham, this valley of tears, this world of woe, and he sighs. Hendrickson said this, the sorrows of this man were his sorrows. Did you hear that? The sorrows of this man who could not, who could not hear, who could not speak, when he was brought to him and Jesus is about to heal him, his sorrows were his sorrows. This is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So as Hendrickson says, this, the sorrows of this man were his sorrows. Jesus never healed anyone half-heartedly. He always put everything he had into his work of mercy. Calvin said this, when he looked up to heaven and sighed, it was an expression of strong feeling. And this enables us to perceive the vehemence of his love towards men for whose miseries he feels so much compassion. It is God entering into his world. It is God in the flesh entering into our world, our need, our circumstances. And this will be most deeply seen when we see him go to the cross bearing our curse for him, for us as our substitute. The sigh simply points forward to the majesty of God become man hanging upon a cross, bearing the wrath of God when his sigh deepens into a cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The sigh deepens when he takes upon himself the curse, when he removes our guilt, when he bears our deserved wrath. And so, as he obeys the law that we broke, and he will go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins as our substitute, he sighs in the midst of this fallen world, the impeccable Son of God, holy, sinless, undefiled in the midst of sin and a darkened world. But there's an additional comfort for us even now, because we read in the book of Hebrews these words, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we have, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.
Jesus the God-man, though not sighing as he sits at the right hand of the Father, nonetheless, he still, still feels for you. He loves you. He expresses omnipotent compassion for you in all of your need, in all of the fallenness of the expression of your life. You still have a great high priest who is the personal Christ to you, who pulls you aside, so to speak, and speaks the word of healing and the word of comfort, who intercedes for you in omnipotent compassion. And so we see something else here, don't we? As the character of Christ, therefore, is drawn in your life, and you enter into the world and needs of others with mercy and compassion, after the pattern of Christ coming to us in the incarnation, you too will sigh. You too will groan for those you love, for those you care for, for those that you long to help, but only Christ can help. You too will sigh because you have come to realize that love, though willingly and freely given, love is costly. Now be careful here. There is only one infinite and true God, only one Savior. There is only the second person of the Trinity that can enter into time and space and become man and save us from our sins. There is only the second person of the Trinity who could redeem us from our sins. We are not called to fix people. We are not the Savior. We are not saviors. That is not our calling. But we fail to understand the gospel if we do not see that we are called by it to self-sacrificial love, entering into the world of others, especially in concentric circles, which brings anguish and suffering to us as well. Love then keeps us from being preoccupied with ourselves. Love, the love of Christ, transforms us so that we are compassionate and concerned about others. And this love is costly love. And again, keep in perspective, only Christ can atone for sins on the cross. Only He could sigh with that depth. Only He could cry, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Only He can be the Savior. You are not called to save the world, but you are called to follow the Savior in your love for others in a finite way as a redeemed child of God. The cure was a costly cure because it required that God become man. It required, it's the necessity of the atonement that we could be saved by none other and in no other way but by Christ who went to the cross. But the cure also calls for praise, and this is the fourth thing you see, that it is a doxological cure. We read in verse 36 of this small little account, and Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Let's read on. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So already the healing of the leper, his preaching ministry had so grown, and he wants the, the crowds perhaps to be 
to be thinned out somewhat. He doesn't want to continue to spread this fame, but also it's because, as you know, only at the resurrection will there be the open proclamation of Christ to the nations. And so they disobey him, and we, they're culpable for this. They don't obey. But in disobeying, they also praise. I'm not saying the disobedience with praise, but they disobeyed, and they can't help but say, we're marveling at what he did. We're astounded at what he did. This man does all things well. And verse 37, where he says, this man does all things well, Maybe a hint at Genesis 131. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So a hint of the Son's new creation agenda. And here it's translated beyond all measure. In any case, whether that hint is there or not, the new creation theme is there every time Jesus performs a miracle, every time he saves a sinner. That wonderful new creation power is exhibited. So he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of Jesus' miracles point to this. What brings men into the kingdom is the power of God who can change the mind, who can change the will, who can change the direction of the soul, who can regenerate, who can convert through the power of the Spirit. What brings men into the kingdom of God is the power of God, analogous to what God did originally at creation. That is what is being shown by the miracles of Jesus. That is what is shown in his resurrection from the dead. That is what Paul means when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Do you realize, child of God, that what has happened to you is a greater thing, is analogous to what happened when God spoke and the world came to be? That's the power of God that is required to save. And Christian renewal parallels to the original creation of the universe. And this stresses the magnitude of what it means to be a Christian. When you become a Christian, it is nothing less than new creation. Only, as I said, I believe that it's a more powerful thing. And I say that for this reason. Because when God spoke, and we, say of, we speak of creation ex nihilo, when God simply spoke, And the worlds came to be. Here, there is creation out of its opposite. The new creation, you, the new creation, this creation was created out of death. Out of death. He brought you to life though you were dead in trespasses and sins. Everything in fallen man is indisposed to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that is no hindrance to divine omnipotence. And he saves out of death, bringing you into life. I think this is amazing. This is astounding. And when you go through your everyday and through the mundane, maybe you should pause every once in a while and think, oh, look what awaits me. Look at the hope that has promised me already. 
though not yet, I have obtained these things through the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. Already I see, I understand, though I do not understand it fully as I will, and though the power of it sometimes eludes me, yet God brought me to life out of death. What an astounding and amazing thing that should transform our Christian living. Someone rightly said, God acts through Jesus in miracles because He will act upon Jesus in the resurrection. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark. Now think about this man. This man that could not hear and he could not speak, at least not not in a way that was intelligible. What this man could now hear. Maybe there is this dazzling stream that was nearby. He's seen it with the, the, the playful little waves and the, the sun that was glinting. He's seen it many a time, but he's never heard the playful banter of this wonderful little stream. And now, imagine, he probably wants to run and splash in it and hear the splashes. He's a joyful man. He can now hear the birds of the air that once he could only see. He'd never heard the chirping and the, the, the beautiful songs of the birds. He had never heard human voices. Now he can hear human voices expressing amazement at this cure. The voice of the one who healed him, he can hear the words of Jesus as he teaches from the heart, as he draws men unto himself. He can now sing God's praises. He can sing God's praises in the synagogue. He's being restored to what he was created to be. And if he's a Gentile for the very first time, if he's not a member of a synagogue, he's a Gentile, then he will sing the praises of God for the very first time also as a saved Gentile. And believers, that is what Jesus is doing in our lives. And in this text, the people are overwhelmed with amazement. And Mark wants you to be overwhelmed with amazement also. Because this is a comment on Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then shall the eyes of the blind be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. This is a comment on it. This is its fulfillment. It is the time when God comes. It is when He comes and all things are made new. The resurrection of Jesus teaches us to know that a radical change has come into the world and it is far-reaching. It is far-sweeping. Indeed, it is all-encompassing. It is all-embracing. And this needs to be always remembered because we still live in a fallen world and we cannot always see it. But it is so nonetheless. And Christ has come. He has died and was raised by the power of God. And nothing will ever be the same again. And this has profound implications for our mission in the world. God came down to seek the lost and He calls the church to proclaim the message that Jesus has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Father's heart has burned in costly love for His enemies, you and me, people of God, and now such love calls upon us to love the lost and burn for their conversion. This text also helps us to see that the church, after the pattern of her merciful Lord, must be a drawing church, holding high the standard of Jesus Christ. God has come, and He has come to the Decapolis. He has not simply come to Jerusalem. He has not simply 
come to Judea. He has come to the Gentile cities of the Decapolis. God has come to the Gentiles. We don't heal the sick. We do not raise the dead, but we can point to the one who did heal the sick and raise the dead, and we can proclaim it to everyone. God has come. The Jewish Messiah is also the Savior of the Gentiles. God has come. Do you hear it? God has come. God has come. He is the Savior of the world who does all things well. And you know, we have in those who are healed in the Gospels, such as this small little passage this morning, we have also signs of our depravity and sin and of our need. There we were by nature, deaf mutes. We could not hear in the, in the, in the heart the magnificence and greatness of God. Our tongues could not praise. Our tongues would not well up from the heart singing the praises of a Savior whom we did not and could not know. And Paul tells us it was not only being deaf, not only being mute, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But the one who healed this deaf mute can give sinners life and then you hear and then you speak. And he is able even this morning to take his word proclaimed by his ambassador and through the power of the Holy Spirit say to you, Ephatha be opened. Let the bonds be loosed that now hold you. But by nature... Apart from that grace, we are lost forever. And we would be like Louis XIV. Louis XIV, the pleasure-loving king, when he was on his deathbed. Wouldn't you think, at least as we as regenerated people, think of death and the seriousness of it and eternity to come. Wouldn't you think that Louis XIV, again, pleasure-seeking that he would turn from that and believe and repent and trust. Well, no, he didn't. He asked his priest to absolve him of his sins. And the priest asked the king, do you suffer much? And his answer was, that's what troubles me. I should like to suffer more for the expiation of my sins. Have you ever heard sadder words than the words of Louis XIV? Because it shows us that the lost natural man, even on his deathbed, looks to himself. Trusts himself. Looks to what he thinks he can do or could have done. Rather than looking away from himself, becoming extrospective, looking to Christ and trusting in Christ alone as his Redeemer. The lost man does not see his depth of corruption and that he alone can be saved by Christ. So in saving us from our sins, in renewing us in God's image, our Lord has exercised divine omnipotence. 
and as I have the privilege of calling, believe and repent. It is with the knowledge that the Lord can take that word and open a heart and bring you out of death into life and make of you a new creature. He has done for us what he alone could have done. Truly, people of God, it is, it is so, isn't it? That our Lord does all things well. He really does. He does all things well. Amen and amen.